The reading this evening is taken from Romans chapter eight, verses twelve to seventeen. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start with a question, and the question is this, what is it that defines us? Uh, What is it that defines us? Uh, What is it that gives us a sense of who we are and uh, what we are? And uh, related to that question, what is it that tells us why we are uh, or what we are for? Uh, These, of course, are questions, this cluster of questions centers around the uh, idea of identity. From where do we find our identity. There are many candidates uh, available for us uh, that offer us some form of identity. Uh, I've jotted down a few. Our upbringing, of course, can offer a sense of identity at a particular school. Uh, our gender. Uh, social media can offer us an identity. Uh, sports team. I find my identity in the sports team that I support. Uh, it might be a particular hobby uh, that gives us a particular identity, a particular social group. Uh, with which I identify and find my identity in. Uh, It might be friends, of course. It might be family. Uh, It might be job. Uh, The list goes on and on. It is a big question for our culture, one that is spoken about a lot. If you read the newspapers, questions of where we find our identity, where we locate our identity are, uh, are common. And it seems to be an issue that is causing real confusion in our culture Uh, Where should we go to find our identity? How do we know when we have found our identity? And it's causing real harm. Um, I came across an article preparing for this sermon, um, uh, which is an excellent article. Actually, I commend it to you in its entirety. It's called The Modern Crisis of Identity. And it's written by a man called Glyn Harrison, who some of you will know. He's a Christian I can't remember if he's a Christian psychiatrist or a Christian psychologist, but anyway, he worked at Bristol University for many years. He's retired now, but he still writes on the subject. And he has written a paper called The Modern Crisis of Identity. Very interesting. And in it, he says this. According to the New York Times, 2015 was the year we obsessed over identity. One of today's most influential ideologies is the rejection of any given identity in favor of self-identification. And the article goes on to argue, and I thought very convincingly, that this seemingly liberating pursuit has become a chasing after the wind. 
and is leaving in its wake emotional, psychological, and communal damage. Uh, Glenn Harrison goes on to say, the result of this self-identification, rather than accepting any given identity, has become an increasing sense of fragmentation and instability of the self. And he goes on to say that actually that is doing profound harm because we need a stable sense of self. It's integral to our mental health and our well-being. It's also, he goes on to argue, integral to any sense of self-esteem. And he said this, the self-esteem movement uh, has marketed in popular culture that worth and value can simply be asserted. I am special. Think positive. But as studies have shown, rather than producing new, improved versions of the self, brimming with confidence, these self-affirming statements leave people, in the end, with lower self, uh, feelings of lower self-worth and more depressed. It's a very striking, interesting article. It seems to me that what is needed is, praise God, precisely what God offers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a given, coherent stable but dynamic and formative identity. An identity that is from without, not from within. An identity that is gifted, not earned. An identity that can be lived in and lived out in every sphere of life. It doesn't fail in a particular sphere of life, but is and can be all-encompassing. And I think there's no greater articulation of that identity than in Romans 8. 14 to 17, that we just had read to us. Seems to be in these verses, Paul addresses uh, two great related questions of identity. He, uh, he answers the question, who are we? And related to that, he answers the question, why are we? Who are we and why are we? So first, who are we? Questions of identity. Have a look down at the second half of verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. It's difficult to miss the point, I think. By faith, we are sons of God. We have received the spirit of sonship. Uh, By the way, just to say very briefly, I think he uses the language of sons and sonship, and then he moves on to children because he wants to draw a parallel with Adam as the first son, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but that's why he uses the language of sons for men and women, because he wants to take us back to Adam, but I'll come back to that. The point being is that if we're a Christian here, uh, we have... um, uh, the answer to the most fundamental, or the most fundamental answer to the most profound question we can ask, who am I? I am a child of the living God. Or to put it another way around, the living God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, is my father. And I'm part of his family because he has chosen to adopt me. And that means immediately, do you see, that my identity is both graciously given, I was adopted, I was chosen into God's family, So it's a graciously given thing, not something I earn, and it's historically rooted. God has done something in history 
to adopt me and thereby to secure an identity for me. don't need to forge it. I just need to receive it. It's secure and it's stable because it's from without. It's not fixed. Sorry, it is fixed. It precisely is fixed. But it's not static. Uh, It's dynamic because that's the nature of childhood, isn't it? Children grow. Uh, What it is to be a child grows as you grow as a child, as you mature. So too our identity as children of God. It's coherent, it's stable, but it's not static, it's dynamic. Our identity is able to incorporate the events of our lives and shape and interpret the events of our lives. The truth that we are God's children changes the way, doesn't it? We relate to God, of course it must do. Changes the way we relate to uh, one another. Changes the way that I relate to myself. Changes the way that I live. Changes the way that I interpret my circumstances. Speaks into my worries and my anxieties. Shapes the way that I'm parenting. Shapes the way that I'm studying. Shapes the way that I'm working. uh, Shapes the way that I'm playing. Paul says, we have received the spirit of sonship. And that we no longer need to live, therefore, as if we were controlled by the spirit of slavery and fear. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, in what ways uh, are we slaves to fear uh, if we seek to uh, find our identity in ourselves or in the culture around us? These are some of the things I was thinking about. You can Uh, have a think too. It seems to me that if you seek to find your identity uh, in a group, uh, you are a slave always to that fear of, am I acceptable to that group? Uh, What must I do to be acceptable to that group? Have I lost my acceptability to that group, whatever that group might be? If I root my identity in beauty, am I still beautiful? By whose definition is beauty? Is the definition of beauty changing in my culture? If so, do I have to change my definition of beauty? If I root my identity in success, am I successful enough? Intellect, am I clever enough? And so it goes on. If I find my identity in, in, in a communal nature, in, in, in a social gathering, then of course there's always the fear of others because they hold my identity in their hands. And so it's easy to become a slave to the labels that my peers put on me. Uh, be that, well, whatever that might be. But as Christians... Paul says we are children of God. Our identity is fundamentally as a beloved of the Father. And that, says Paul, sets us free from the spirit of slavery and fear. I came across uh, another article preparing for this in which the, the writer, I think, quite helpfully thought through some of the ways in which a spirit of slavery might express itself in the Christian life versus the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption that we've all been given and how that expresses itself in the Christian life. And I've taken a few of his examples and sort of slightly paraphrased them in my own words, but they're quite helpful. See what you think. He said, so here's some examples. First, a slave. For a slave, faith is an effort to believe well enough so that God will accept me. But for a child, faith is the discipline and joy of remembering and living as an accepted child of God. For a slave, obedience is mechanical and dutiful. Its rules and regulations, a cold ethic, we obey out of fear of rejection. One thinks about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. For the child, obedience is the joyful pursuit of growing up in God's family and Christ's image. It is a fruit-bearing, liberating, life-enhancing pursuit. 
And then he thinks about what this looks like in the way that we work and live, not just in the way that we relate to God. He says, for a slave, often life is driven, often one of unrealistic goals and lots of self-criticism as um, we seek to justify uh, ourselves and our position. Uh, but for a child, our life is not uh, consumed by drivenness because we know we are secure and valued. As a slave, we try and hide our failings and our failures from ourselves and from other people. And we might do that by blame-shifting or getting angry at others or being defensive. But as a child, uh, as an accepted child of the, of the Father, we can be open and transparent. We're free from having to put up a front. Uh, we're able to appreciate people who are different. Slaves often feel isolated, feeling that no one understands, no one cares. They can be either unwilling to trust or trust too intensely with a, with a trust that inevitably lets you down. But a child is open and transparent uh, and is neither too independent nor over-dependent. Slaves are controlled by other people's opinion. A child has integrity and courage regardless of who is watching because the only person whose opinion who counts is my father's, and I am his. And so he went on. But you see the point. It profoundly affects every way that we live, the way we relate to God, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to our work changes when we recognize ourselves to be fundamentally those who have received a gracious identity of forgiven, beloved sons of the Father. And that works its way out in every sphere of life. So that's who we are, says Paul. We are children of God. And then he moves to, if you like, why we are, which is in a sense a move from identity to vocation. But those two things are incredibly entwined. Who are we? Sons and daughters of God. What are we for? Well, we're to do the work of God's sons and daughters. And they were created for a purpose, which I think he uses, often uses the language of sons, because he wants to take us back to Eden. He wants to take us back to Adam, who was God's first son. And if you remember, Adam was made in God's image as God's first son in order to work in and rule over and bring more life into God's kingdom that place, that garden where God had placed him, to rule it, to tend it under God, for God, for the benefit of the kingdom. Adam, we are told, was both a priest and a king. His life in the garden, ruling over it and tending it and enlarging it, was his sacrificial service to God with whom he walked. Now, we know, we know of course, that he failed, and it required Jesus uh, the true and better son to come, the greater priest, the greater king, who worked to establish God's kingdom by laying down his life in love. And now he rules over his growing kingdom. But Paul's point, I think, is that when you get adopted into God's family and you become sons of God again, well, so you received that vocation that Adam and Christ received. As adopted children, we're being renewed in that vocation of priesthood and kingship. We're called to live God's way in God's world, stewarding it under him again, extending his rule, bringing new spiritual life in whatever sphere we find ourselves in. And we find ourselves in many spheres. That's not just the spiritual sphere, whatever that means. It is 
all of life because, of course, all of life is the spiritual sphere. A few, um, well, it may have been years ago now, the church and house groups, we looked at some material produced by the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity called uh, Fruitfulness on the Front Line. And the point that that um, very helpfully, that um, study, series of studies made very helpfully was that there is no or should be no secular sacred divide. That we are called to be, if you like, pre- priests and kings of God's kingdom, working for God and that uh, in every sphere of life, seeking to steward wisely, to, uh, well, what, what was it? It was to model godly character, to live like God, under God, to make good work, to minister grace and love, to mold cult, uh, culture, to be a mouthpiece for truth and justice. All of these things as God's representatives here now in his, uh, in his world. Now, that is what it is to be. There is no sacred, secular divide. As we do that, that is our spiritual act of worship as God's priests and kings. It's a wonderful, liberating truth, I think, this whole life vocation of being God's priests and kings, uh, renewed in that uh, image uh, as vocations as his sons and daughters now. Uh, It means there's no such thing as mundane uh, because all our work can and should be imbued with honor as we see it as an act of worship done for God, whatever it might be. It means that uh, when we are working either as an employee or an employer, it means that the bottom line is no longer the bottom line because we now put it into that bigger narrative of a bigger vocation that we have because our identity first and foremost is not employer or employee, it is son or daughter of the living God. And so that means that we want to be good employers and good employees. It's, more, it's, it's about more than money, it's about people. It's about uh, stewarding God's creation wisely as a company. It's about extending the frontiers of human knowledge because that is a good and godly thing to do because it's God's world and God's knowledge. Uh, It's about uh, looking after people well. It's about suddenly companies and work and all these things, whether we're an employer or an employee, are much bigger as they're put in the context of our bigger vocation as sons and daughters of God to be God's people in God's world that he is as renewing us and calling us to be uh, his new kingdom community. One writer put it like this, we're called to be a counter-cultural community, serving him and treating the world um, as is uh, sort of fitting, as his stewards. And we give the world a glimpse of what that future kingdom will look like when he renews it perfectly. We, We are to model how all of life, business practices, race relations, family life, art, culture, can be healed and rewoven by the king. And we do all this as we look forward to the day when we will be raised to rule with him over a perfected kingdom. Did you see that in verse 17? If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There is our eternal vocation. That vocation that begins now as priests and kings will be perfected when we are raised in new creation bodies, in a perfected new creation, and we will be uh, priests who are able to worship God perfectly because we'll be sin-free, and we will be, he says, heirs with Christ, kings over this new kingdom that Christ is establishing it, ruling it with him and for him and under him. Here is our eternal vocation. And that means that our duties now, as sons and daughters of God here, are duties precisely because they are our destiny. Uh, We we don't do them in order to earn uh, God's favor and grace, as it were. They're expressions of our new identity and our eternal vocation. Our destiny, a point well made by Tom Wright in quite a lot of his writings. 
It is our duty because it is our destiny. It doesn't mean that it'll be easy. It will require uh, effort. Uh, verses 12 and 13, Paul starts this section by reminding us that we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. It is uh, to put to death the misdeeds of the body in the power of the Spirit, which is just simply to say that we have an obligation to live according to our new identities, an obligation to live as sons and daughters of God, consecrated to the ways of God. Therefore, we strive to put to death all that is not in accordance with being a priest and king in God's kingdom. We put to death the pull of our old sinful, self-centered nature, and now we live according to God's spirit, the spirit of sonship, the spirit who reminds us that we are priests and kings in God's kingdom. And we seek to establish this not only in our lives, but increasingly through our work and our conversations and our relationships uh, around us as we sing to bring Christ's life-bringing rule and reign wherever it is that we find ourselves And that is an identity, of course, and a vocation that might even lead to some suffering, which is how Paul closes this section. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And that, of course, is because Christ's kingdom in many ways clashes uh, with the kingdoms that we find ourselves in. So we will not be unopposed as we seek to bring God's ways and God's justice, and God's grace, and God's way of life into our own life and into the ways of life around us insofar as we are able. But that is our vocation, and it is our vocation because it is our identity. And it is a glorious vocation and a fulfilling uh, vocation because it flows perfectly from our identity as those who have been filled with God's Spirit called sons and daughters of our heavenly Father, being renewed in the image of Christ, the true and greater Son, and therefore renewed in his vocation, which is to extend the boundaries of his kingdom and to show what it looks like to live and be a part of God's kingdom, which he is establishing now, slowly but surely through his people, and will one day when Christ returns, established fully and finally and perfectly, and we will be raised to be perfected kings and priests in his kingdom. Amen.